Amen. Good morning, Harvest. You can go and have a seat. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as associate pastor. And whether you're joining us uh, in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we are so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. Uh, we had, like I think Nate said earlier, we have a gift for you. Uh, if you are a first-time guest, want to connect with somebody that's wearing a lanyard this morning, uh, we've got a gift for you, and we would just love to uh, know how we can best serve you and pray for you and just get to connect for a little bit. But let's go ahead and get into our time in God's Word together this morning. So if you would, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever it is that you like to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me again uh, this morning in Jonah chapter 2. We're continuing our our short four-week series through the book of Jonah uh, called Jonah, A Story of God's Grace. Uh, And so I would love for you to join me there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Uh, There's still ways you could get your eyes on God's Word. Uh, First of all, you could just pull out a phone and Google uh, Jonah chapter 2. It'll pop up for you. Or I'm I'm sure there's someone sitting around you somewhere that would be happy to share their copy of God's Word with you, or that we've got some in the back. Uh, That if you don't have one at all, we would love for you to just uh, take one of those Bibles on the back table back there uh, and keep it as our gift to you so that you can have God's Word for yourself, to read it, to devour it. We love God's Word here at Harvest. But but Jonah chapter 2 this morning... And even if you're still turning there, I want to start this morning by by going ahead and reading the passage. It's okay if you're not there yet. We'll come back to it uh, in just a moment. But Jonah chapter 2 says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray for our time together in God's word this morning. Father, There is no greater love, as we just sang, than you sending your son to die on the cross for us this morning. And even though we're looking at an Old Testament book before your son came, we're still seeing your grace just played out on the pages of scripture before us. And so my prayer this morning, as we continue going through the book of Jonah, is that you would meet us where we are this morning and you would uh, illuminate, shine the light on your grace in your word and apply it to our hearts and our lives. Help us to remember who we are as recipients of grace. Would you do a mighty work in us this morning to glorify yourself and change us by your grace? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to start this morning by asking you a simple question. I want to know, where do you like to do your devotions? Like, where, is there a specific spot in your house maybe where you like to go and that's where you, you pull out your Bible and you spend time in the Lord and, and, with the Lord in, in his word and praying? Is there a specific spot you like to do it? Like, like, maybe for you, it's at your kitchen table. Before the sun comes up, you've got your coffee right there, and, and that's where you spend time with the Lord. Maybe for you, it's on the back porch uh, while the birds are singing and the kids are playing in the backyard. Maybe that's, that's your spot. 
Maybe, uh, maybe it's, you're an evening person like I am, and so you, you find your favorite recliner in your living room after the house is quiet at the end of the day, and that's where you meet with the Lord. Maybe there's an even more special, uh, specific favorite spot that you actually like to get in your car to and drive to occasionally to spend some extended time with the Lord in, in prayer and in his word. Maybe there's a special spot like that. Well, for me, as far as the, the timing goes, uh, I am not a morning person at all, so I can assure you there is zero chance that it's happening before the sun comes up for me. As far as location, though, uh, when we lived in North Carolina, one of my absolute favorite spots to spend time with the Lord was on the campus of Southeastern Seminary, where, where I had the privilege of studying. And, and I'd go out on the quad, and there was a gazebo there with a little fountain right in front of Binkley Chapel, and it was just an awesome place to spend time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer. It doesn't happen that often now, but now one of my favorite spots is to head down towards the, the docks in Annapolis and just sit there. Like There's something special about the, the breeze and the water that just makes time with the Lord extra special. I also uh, highly recommend uh, time alone with the Lord on a quiet corner of a cruise ship, but, but that's beside the point. Uh, that's very special. More, most mornings or most, most days, it looks way more routine for me, probably like it does for you. I just find myself at my desk at, at home with my Bible open, coffee always there, but that's where I spend time with the Lord. And I'm sure if we were actually to we go around the room this morning and ask, hey, where's like the most special and impactful place that you've ever spent time with the Lord, we'd probably get some pretty interesting answers from somewhere around the room this morning. But what I can probably, I'm willing to bet that there's nobody here this morning that would say that the most incredible time that I have ever spent with the Lord was inside of a fish. Like, I'm going to go on a limb and say that. Like, that's probably not likely this morning, but it's exactly where we find Jonah praying for grace in Jonah chapter 2. When we left Jonah last week at the end of chapter 1, he'd disobeyed God's word. He was being completely indifferent to God's discipline. Like, he did not care. Then we finally ended up at the end of chapter 1 with him admitting his sin, but for sure not repenting for it. And then we, we know that the sailors threw him overboard from that ship that he had chartered to run from the presence of the Lord. We could almost hear the scream as he was thrown overboard. We could probably hear the splash and maybe even hear the swallow of the fish as Jonah 1.17 that we ended with last week says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We talked about how the purpose of God's discipline is to graciously move us towards repentance. And, and Jonah was for sure experiencing that discipline when he hit the water and began to sink. But it wasn't just discipline uh, in that fish. That fish was an instrument of God's grace to save Jonah's life and to give him one more chance, one more opportunity, one more, one more uh, opportunity for repentance. And so now in Jonah chapter 2 this morning, we find Jonah waking up inside that fish with his clothes all wet, probably covered in seaweed, uh, probably coughing up a little water, maybe rubbing his eyes, trying to figure out uh, why it's so dark in here, maybe like repulsed by the smell around him. But before we get to all that, here's our big idea this morning. Here's our one-sentence overarching theme of Jonah chapter 2 that'll tie all together for us. Our, our big idea this morning is this, that God graciously hears and responds to us when we call on Him with repentant hearts. Again, that God graciously hears and responds to us when we call on Him with repentant hearts. See, here's the thing. Just like we said last week in Jonah chapter 1, God cares way more about the condition of your heart that he does about the location of your feet. And that includes when it comes to your time with him. 
So as we look at Jonah's rather uh, unique experience and his, his unique time spent with God praying and repenting in the belly of the fish, we're going to see three characteristics this morning of truly repentant hearts. And as we look at these characteristics, I want us to ask ourselves, like, are these characteristics true of my heart and my life? Are, are these characteristics of a truly repentant heart, can I see them at work in my life? And so let's, let's look at that. Here's the first one. Here's number one. Repentant hearts are humbled by grace that repentant hearts are humbled by grace. If you still have your copy of God's word open with me, would you look back with me at Jonah chapter two, verses one through four, and we see that here. Here's Jonah beginning to pray. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Well, back in chapter one, the, the pagan captain of, of that ship uh, had to wake Jonah up and tell him to start praying. But I think it's pretty clear, uh, nobody's having to tell Jonah to start praying now. Like God's finally got his attention here. Like, try to imagine the shock of, of being thrown overboard, thinking this is the end of the road for you, and you're, you're beginning to sink, and, and, and you, like, you think this is it. And all of a sudden, you wake up and cough up some water, and then uh, start to realize slowly that the reason it's so warm and humid is not because it's summer in Maryland, but because you are inside of a giant fish. Like, that's a pretty shocking thing. So what I want to know is, at what point in these three days that Jonah was, was in this fish, at what point... Did he finally start to pray? At what point did all this start happening and he start praying for grace? Whenever that moment was for Jonah, the point is that God had graciously saved his life and humbled him for sure. Like God's in control here. He's been in control all along, not Jonah. Did you notice that this, this fish did not come and, and save Jonah's life after he prayed, but God had already appointed this fish to be doing something back in chapter one. Like God was already working even while Jonah was still running. Like that's grace. But now God's got his attention. And verse one says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Even that phrase tells us that things are starting to turn around, like things are starting to head in the right direction. Before, Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord, but now Jonah's seeing God rightly again. He's seeing God clearly. Like even at a time when probably if Jonah were to put his hand in front of his face, he couldn't even see his hand in front of his face because it's so dark in there. He was starting to clearly see God's hand at work in his life. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. You ever been there? You know what it feels like to call out to the Lord in the middle of, the, of your distress? When you don't know what else to do, but you, but you know you have no other options, and you are at the end of yourself, and the only thing that you could do is start praying in desperation. You ever been there? I could venture to say that probably why we wouldn't admit it at the time, we'd never say it at the time, praying during desperate times and seasons of our lives often in hindsight end up being some of the, the sweetest times that we've ever spent with the Lord. Like I can think back to a time like that in my own life about almost seven years ago, the night that, uh, that Silas, our oldest son, was born. 
He surprised us by coming about a month early in a pretty dramatic way, a month before his due date, and there were some pretty serious complications that were really life-threatening for both my wife, Veronica, and, and, and Silas. And it was so much so that we're told that if we were just a few minutes after we were getting to the hospital, there probably would have been very little chance of survival for either of them. But by God's grace... Uh, they both did survive, and then we spent uh, quite a few days in the NICU at the hospital. But, but thankfully, we lived across the street from the hospital, and so uh, many hours after he was born, I, I went home like well after midnight to take a shower and change some clothes, and I went into what was going to be Silas's room, and I got on my face before God, and I called out to him out of my distress, and I wept, and God met me in that moment. In ways that a few times in my life have I ever sensed God's presence that clearly. I think the reason that we can look back on times like those and see them as sweet is because it's times like that when we're most humble. When we're most humble, we tend to be the most helpless. They're connected. And when we're the most helpless, we're the most likely to call out to God in desperation. And moments like that, and certainly like what Jonah's experiencing here, we know we're at the end of ourselves when we know that there's literally nothing that we can do other than cry out to God. Because at that point, we have been humbled. And that's where we need to be, and that's where we need to stay if we want to position ourselves well to experience God's grace at work in our lives. We don't want to be prideful. We want to be humble. As, Jonah chapter, or as James chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's about that heart position. But here in the middle, here's the miracle of Jonah's prayer that we should never lose sight of. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Listen, listen, you can talk to the God of the universe with a humble and repentant heart and he will hear you. Like that should be mind-blowing to us. Just think about that for a minute. Through Jesus, we have direct access to God. Like at any given time, there could be millions of people crying out to the Lord at the same time, and, and he doesn't just hear it as one big jumbled, crowded noise like we would hear it. He's able to hear each person individually and deal with them personally. Like how amazing is that? Like those of us that have more than one kid know how hard it is to, to hear the cries and needs of more than one child at a time and to try to meet them. Like that's next to impossible for us. And yet God is able to hear everyone and deal with them perfectly all the time. So Jonah moves on in verse three to acknowledge what God's been doing to humble his heart. Notice this, he says, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. It was your waves and your billows that passed over me. Jonah's recognizing here as he's reflecting from inside the belly of the fish, he's recognizing that this was not just some, some tragic accident that, that happened to, to, to experience. Like that's, that's not what's going on. He's realizing that it was God's grace to humble him and move him towards repentance. Like his, his tone here isn't, come on, God. Was that, was that really necessary? Could you not have found another way? Like, I really don't feel like this is what you had to do to me. No, that's not his tone here. His tone is a humble, God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for doing what was necessary to get a hold of me when I wouldn't stop running. Thank you for pursuing me when I was disobedient to your word and, 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 and indifferent to your discipline. Thank you for your grace that's humbled me and brought me to repentance because I would not have gotten to this point on my own. So thank you, God. And friends, that's an attitude of humble submission to what God's doing in our lives, even when we don't like it. That's an attitude of 
trusting God to do what's best for us, even when we don't understand what's going on. So can I ask you, is that, is that how you tend to respond to hard things in life? Is that how you respond to difficult circumstances or trials or discipline or really any hard thing in life? Many of you are probably familiar with the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Johnny grew up in Baltimore and, and like many teenagers, uh, most teenagers, uh, she lived a very active life. She loved horseback riding and swimming. And then one day, somewhere around her 18th birthday, she came down to uh, Sandy Point Park down here near Annapolis and she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and moments later found herself paralyzed from the neck down. For the next several years, she struggled with anger, depression, even suicidal thoughts at, at, from time to time. But, but God did an amazing work in her heart and life. She's gone on to write over 40 books, and she's an incredible gift to the church. And this is a bit of an extended quote, but I want you to hear what she has to say in her own words. This is from her 1978 book, A Step Further, Growing Closer to God Through heart, Hurt and Hardship. Here's what Johnny says. She says, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues that you've been avoiding. He's pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires? Am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. But today, as I look back, I'm convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. No, I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke, but God had reasons beyond my suffering and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. So let me just say very clearly for us that not every trial we face is as a direct result of God's discipline in our lives like it was for Jonah. Like, no, God's not sitting up in heaven with a, a hammer playing some divine game of whack-a-mole. He's not sitting there with a, with a remote to a shock collar waiting to zap us when we sin. But he is using everything in our lives, whether it's actually discipline for our sin like it was for Jonah, or whether it's simply the result of living in a broken, uh, sinful, messed-up world like it was for Johnny Erickson Tata. He's using everything to sanctify you and grow you and to make you look more like his son, Jesus Christ. We've got to remember that when God disciplines us. The point isn't for him to punish us, but to restore us. It's grace. That's what he's been doing here with Jonah. It's grace, undeserved favor. So let me ask you one question this morning. Is your heart soft and humble before God, or is it hard and defensive? Like if you still find yourself this morning running from God's grace, like we talked about last week, let me just ask you, like, what are you going to continue to make God have to do? Or what are you going to make him have to do to break your hard heart? Or will you just surrender? Will you surrender to him, wave the flag and run towards grace? Well, that God would give us soft and humble hearts. But at this point, Jonah's waved the white flag of surrender. We could, we could all say, Finally. He says in verse four that, that he thought he was being driven away from God's presence, which ironically is exactly what he had wanted a few days before there. But he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah finally remembers grace. Now he's recognizing that God's not done with him yet. That there's still hope for him. 
God's humbled him and he's repenting because he knows that God graciously hears and answers us when we call on him with repentant hearts. But not only are are repentant hearts humbled by grace, after they've been humbled though, they're then lifted by grace. And that's the second, second characteristic this morning, that repentant hearts are lifted by grace. Look back with me at verses five through seven in Jonah chapter two. Jonah goes on in his prayer. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You've probably noticed that throughout this series, I've been uh, using the word grace a ton. And just so you know, um, yes, that's completely intentional. Like it's not some trendy church word that we're trying to just throw in and cram in as much as we possibly can. It's really at the, at the heart of the book of Jonah. And it's at the heart of all of scripture. And really it should be at the heart of all who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And here in verses five through seven, we see that the heart of grace is in action in Jonah's life. One of the things that I absolutely love about Jonah, it's, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. One of the reasons that it's that is because I just absolutely love the uh, intentional literary detail that the author uses, especially in the original Hebrew as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like if you play close, pay close enough attention, it even comes through a little bit in English, but, but you might not notice it at first glance, but what really has been going on here for the last like chapter and a half is that, is that the author has been tracking the trajectory of Jonah's life. He's been writing it down for us. He's showing us the trajectory of his life. Back at the beginning of chapter one, uh, God told Jonah to get up and go. And we talked about how Jonah went west instead of east, but, but Jonah's sin has consistently shown him going down. In verse three of chapter one, he went down to Joppa. And he chartered a boat and he went down into it to go with them. Then again in verse five, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship at the very bottom as low as he could go. And of course, then they throw him in the ocean and he starts sinking and going down and down and down. Like the Hebrew verb that means to go down or to descend is yarad. And so literally, if you read it in Hebrew, the entire like first chapter just keeps saying yarad, yarad, yarad. He's going down, he's going down, he's going down. And then here in chapter two, Jonah finally acknowledges the fact, yeah, I was going down. Like my life was headed down. My sin took me down. It was heading to the bottom and I hit rock bottom. You ever been there? You're waking up there now at rock bottom in need of God's grace. Is that where you are now? The picture here is so vivid and it's not a pretty sight. Jonah says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Like I was drowning in the Mediterranean Sea and there was nothing I could do about it. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I was covered and tangled in seaweed at the very bottom of the ocean. Like let's just say that's clear. Uh, Things are not looking up for Jonah at this point. And then Jonah says it himself, what the narrator's been saying all through the last chapter and a half. He says, I went down, I yarad, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's basically saying, let me tell you, I could not have gotten any lower. It was over for me. I had one foot in the grave. I was at death's door and it was clanging shut behind me. I had lost all hope. And I was literally at this point just wondering how many more seconds I had to live. But God... 
See, every story of God's grace hinges on those two words, including Jonah's. But God, he says it himself, but you brought, me, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah's probably underwater screaming for help at the top of his lungs, but we all know that you can't hear people screaming underwater from more than a couple feet away. And even then it's, it's pretty muffled. But God heard Jonah all the way up from the depths of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way on his, in his, on his throne in heaven. God heard him and answered him and came to his rescue. Just as the hardship of life brought the prodigal son in Luke 15 to the, to the place where he made the decision to repent and return to his father, in what Jonah thought were the last moments of his life, he remembered the Lord. He set his mind, he fixed his attention on where he knew he could find grace. He turned his eyes to God. Friends, this is such a clear picture of how we were drowning in our own sin before Jesus saved us. We've all heard tragic stories of people who died while just enjoying a, a, a nice day at the beach with their families. Even fully grown men who were uh, completely in great shape and were experienced swimmers have found themselves being pulled out to sea by the currents that were more powerful than them and then drowning in the ocean when they thought they were perfectly safe all along. It's a, it's a terrible thing to even imagine the sights and sounds of someone swimming for their life as hard as they possibly can and screaming and being pulled under as they're realizing that they're entirely powerless to save themselves. But that's the reality of what our sin does to us apart from Christ. Like there is no overcoming the dangerous current of your sin. The, the, the pull that sin has on our lives is pulling us under. Apart from Christ, there is no hope for us. We are Jonah tangled in seaweed and stuck at the bottom of the ocean with no ability to save ourselves. No matter how many swimming lessons Jonah could have taken to prepare himself for this moment, and no matter how loudly he could have screamed in hopes that someone would hear him and come to his rescue, death is certain apart from God's intervention in his life. The same is true for us. God is a holy and perfect God, and because he's holy and perfect, he rightly demands holiness and perfection from us too. He wrote his law on our hearts, and every single one of us has broken that law and sinned against him and found ourselves facing eternal punishment for our sin in a literal, physical place called hell. We had no hope. But as we sung earlier, God sent the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to this earth to come and live the perfect life that we could never live and then die the death that we deserved. Jesus took the punishment for us on the cross when he died in our place and then he rose from the dead to defeat death once and for all. And now he's sitting at the right hand of Father just waiting to lift us up by grace and save us, to, to use Jonah's words, to pick us up from the pit if we will call on him with repentance and faith. If you will come to him acknowledging your sin and repenting or turning from your sins and placing your faith in for Jesus, for salvation in Jesus and not something or someone or not your own works, he will hear you and he will answer you and he will save you. That's grace. It's God doing for us what we don't deserve and we can't do for ourselves. Should you hear something very clearly? If you're here this morning, you are not too far gone. 
The answer to how, the question of how deep does God's grace go is, is we're looking at it. Well, it's, it's going down to the sandbars at the bottom of the ocean to save a rebellious prophet who deserved to die, who, who should have known better. And so no matter how deep in your sin you are right now, I want you to know that he will hear you and answer you if you will call on him with a humble and truly repentant heart. So if you're listening and you've never done that, do it today. Don't keep running from grace, run to Jesus and be saved and lifted by grace, but then it will not stop there. Repentant hearts are not only humbled by grace and lifted by grace, but finally this morning, they are also changed by grace. It's the third characteristic of truly repentant hearts. Repentant hearts are changed by grace. Look back with me one last time at verses eight through 10 of Jonah chapter two. Jonah says, those who pay regard to to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Here's where we really start seeing the fruit of repentance show up in Jonah's life we're finally seeing a, a, a change take place. Like at this point, he's still stuck in the belly of a fish. So there's no like movement change. Like he's not going anywhere to fix anything, but there is an absolutely a heart level change happening. That's what repentance is. It's about the heart primarily. Even that's grace. See, it's not Jonah that's brought himself to this point. It's not Jonah who's, who's, who's bringing up repentance in his life. It is God who grants repentance. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 2 teaches us. Here's what 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from the pure heart. So there's a command there. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here it is. So that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So it's pretty clear. It is God who grants repentance in our lives. It's God doing the work in our heart to bring us to this place. We talked about repentance a little bit last week, but I think it would be helpful for us to really define what repentance is, to give a a clear picture of what it really is, to put some concrete terms to it so we're really clear about it. So to borrow from Dr. Garrett Higby, who is the uh, sole care director for the Great Commission Collective, our family of churches that we're blessed to be a part of, here's Garrett Higby's definition of repentance. He says that repentance is a recognition of sin for what it is, followed by a heartfelt sorrow for that sin, culminating in a change of behavior. I'll read it again for us. Repentance is a recognition of sin for what it is, followed by a heartfelt sorrow for that sin, and culminating in a change of behavior. And so notice, it, 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 it's a change that takes place in every part of you. It, it changes your mind. It's, I, I see, I recognize my sin now for what it is. It takes place in your emotions. Your, it, it says, I, I hate, I'm repulsed by the, the sin that I used to love. There's a, there's a sorrow there. It's, a, it's affecting your emotions, but also in your will. To say, with God's help, I don't want to be that way anymore. I want to change. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I I need God's grace as I repent to change me. Let's be very clear, though, that the repentance is a change that must take place uh, in you. 
The sin was done by you, the penalty was paid by Jesus, and the repentance is granted by God, but the change also has to take place in you. The change can't take place in your spouse, it can't take place in your kids, it can't take place in your boss, it can't take place in your circumstances. Like, don't wait for them, the change has to take place in you. And that's what we're starting to see here with Jonah. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So he's got the first two parts of repentance down here. He's seeing his sin clearly and he's being grieved by it. He's saying, I I see what I was doing now and I hate it. It led nowhere but down to where I am now. In fact, when I was idolizing myself and, and my comfort and my preferences and headed for Tarshish instead of Nineveh, where I should have been going, what I was really doing was, was turning my back on the Lord. I was forsaking my hope of steadfast love. The idols in his life were not carved little statues like the sailors on the ship might have had or like he probably would have found in Nineveh when he got there. They were idols of the heart, things that were taking away from the affection and obedience that only God deserves. So Jonah's finally seeing his sin clearly. That's the first part of repentance. Question is, do you see your sin clearly? Second part of repentance, he's finally grieved by his idolatry. The question is, are you grieved by idolatry? Let me just ask you, is there anything or anyone in your life that, of course, you'd never label it as an idol, but, but if you're honest with yourself, you, you know that's exactly what it is. You know it's pulling you away from, from God. It's, it's, it's stopping you from giving him all of your affection and all of your obedience. Even if you think it's perfectly harmless, what we're learning from Jonah is that idols of the heart lead nowhere good. When you ignore them, they're not as harmless and innocent as you might think. In fact, the truth is, idols of the heart are leading you away from God and causing you to forsake your hope of your steadfast love, as Jonah says here. So humble yourself and and run towards God's grace with a repentant heart. But here's the change in Jonah. Here's the change. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Like, no more idols, God. I'm serious this time. Your grace is changing my heart. What I have vowed, I will pay. And then here's Jonah's big confession. This is the, the pinnacle of the book. This is ground zero for God's grace. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Temptation for Jonah and for us is to look down at other sinners and act like the decision's up to us about whether or not they should get saved. Like somehow we've brought ourselves to the point where sometimes we can act like we're the admissions committee to some, uh, some Ivy League college and we get to sit there and, and judge and decide who's in and who's out. And, and when we're doing that, what we're really saying is salvation belongs to me. Like I get to decide whether or not somebody's worth the risk. I get to decide whether or not they deserve grace. It's basically what Jonah was thinking all through chapter one when God had called him to Nineveh and probably while he was on the boat with those pagan sailors as well. Like I can just hear the thoughts running through his mind. Like, no, salvation starts with the Jews and it ends with the Jews. Like, salvation is for my people, not those people. God, I don't want you to extend it to them. Salvation's for, for, for my people. We do the same thing sometimes. Of course, we'd never say it. It's not necessarily in the terms that, that Jonah would have thought it, but how often does the thought pop into your minds that, no, not them, God. Nope. They don't deserve it, God. God, you wouldn't or couldn't or shouldn't save that person for whatever reason. And we, when we think that way, what we're really saying is salvation belongs to me. And the reason is because we've forgotten our own need for grace. We've forgotten what it's like to be on the outside looking in. Now, salvation is not ours to 
distribute, just ours to proclaim. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his and his alone, and he can do with it whatever he wants and save whoever he pleases. Like if you look at the t-shirt that's called salvation on the, on the tag, it says property of God. It belongs to him. The statement that salvation belongs to the Lord isn't just accidentally found at the almost the exact center of the book of Jonah. It is the central message of this book, and we'll see how it comes into play even more in the final two chapters over the next couple of weeks. But I want you to notice something here. Chapter one and chapter two both end with people sacrificing and making vows to the Lord. At the end of chapter one, it was the sailors, these pagan men that Jonah came across. Now at the end of chapter two, it's Jonah. And notice God reacts the same way both times. It's called grace. What that tells me is that whether you are a prophet or a pagan, a Jew or a Gentile, a church kid or a rebel, if you will call on the Lord with a truly humble and repentant heart, he will hear you and respond. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with who he is. It's about his grace. And that's what God's been teaching Jonah all along. He's not done with him yet. God's been reminding Jonah of his own need for grace so that he'll be ready to go and proclaim that grace to others. And that should be a reminder for us as well. When we're constantly thankful for God's grace towards us, we'll be extending God's grace to others as well. And that's what we'll see Jonah finally doing next week in chapter three. But for now, God's humbled Jonah. And he's lifted Jonah and he's changed Jonah. He's gotten a hold of his heart. Jonah called on God with a repentant heart and God has heard him and answered him by his grace. And so just like he did at the end of chapter one, the narrator closes chapter two by reminding us that it's God who's in control of everything. He gives the fish a command and it obeys. Go, go, go spit Jonah up. It goes and spits Jonah up back on dry land, probably back near Joppa where Jonah had first gotten on that boat to run from the Lord in the first place. And that's where we'll find Jonah next week. But you know, by now it should be crystal clear to us that God in his grace is willing to go to incredible lengths to bring us to the point of repentance. Whether you're turning your heart to God for the first time, you're considering turning your, your heart to God for the first time this morning, or you're returning your heart to God like Jonah, I want you to know that as long as God is giving you breath, you are never outside the reach of God's grace. His loving grasp that reaches out to draw you back isn't guaranteed to be enjoyable. It, it's not always painless like you might want it to be. But God's more concerned with your holiness than he is with your happiness. His discipline might even hurt sometimes, and it's almost guaranteed to be uncomfortable. But really, what, what discipline isn't uncomfortable? But you can trust that God will do what's best for your good and his glory with surgical precision every single time. C.S. Lewis gives us an incredible picture of who God is in his classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In that book, it's a fictional book, uh, kids named Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy have accidentally wandered into the fictional land of Narnia where it's been cursed to the point where it is, uh, quote, uh, always winter but never Christmas. And these kids hear about Aslan, the, 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 the savior king of Narnia who happens to be a lion. And when they hear that he's a lion, they're, they're shocked. And I want you to hear the conversation that these fictional characters have with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who's helping them through their journey. Said, ooh, said Lucy, I, I thought Aslan was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the lesson we're learning along with Jonah. That life as a servant of the living God was never meant to be safe, especially when you're living in disobedience to him. But God is good. And he's constantly moving us towards repentance and and pulling us back to him and writing his story of grace all over our lives. What Psalm 25 says really is true. It says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So friends, when God's moved your heart towards true repentance, you can pray for grace from anywhere, even the inside of a fish like Jonah was. So don't delay because God graciously hears and answers us when we call on him with repentant hearts. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, your grace is amazing. By definition, it is undeserved. We are a people who did not deserve grace when you saved us. We do not deserve it now, but it's part of who you are. You are constantly pursuing us like you were pursuing Jonah. You are ready to hear and answer us when we call on you with truly humble and repentant hearts. You are ready to hear us, to humble us, to lift us and to change us by your grace. It is not something that we can do on our, on our own and we, we confess that now. There are no efforts that we can put out to change our lives, to reach a good uh, standing before you. It must come by grace, through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. If there's someone here this morning that doesn't know that has never placed their faith in Jesus, would you work in their hearts now to draw them to yourself? Do an amazing work. Humble them by your grace. Lift them by your grace and change them by your grace. For those of us that have been walking with you for time, maybe years, maybe decades, remind us of your grace. Remind us of our daily need for your grace, that even now there is nothing that we can do on our own, but we need you. Help us to remember that and can grow us to be more like your son and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.